never miss a powder day. Those coveted days with deep, fresh, powdery snow on the slopes. That was a mantra turned into a successful snow forecasting business. Today on Weather Geeks, meet Joel Graff, an entrepreneurial meteorologist who has figured out how to optimize forecasting mountain snow. Find out how he sees forecasting and communication changing in the future. Joel, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, longtime uh, listener, and I'm excited to be here as a first-time guest. Well, that's always awesome when we get to have a listener on, and I'm really excited to talk to you. Before I even ask the first question, I want to read Joel's goal. It's not often that someone has a goal or a mission statement as a guest, but Joel's goal is to help people have fun outside by providing accurate and personable weather information. Enough with the negative and sensationalized weather. It's time to enjoy the outdoors. And so we're going to get all into what Joel is up to with his business, but you listen to the podcast, Joel, so you know what's coming next. How'd you become a weather geek? Oh, and I, I had the same story as as probably a lot of other people in the uh, in the eighties and nineties. Uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, so I was right on the rain snow line, and uh, I was just obsessed with snow from an early age. From uh, as a skier since age four, and I would call the snow report hotline, and I would watch every uh, weather station or every uh, TV station in Philadelphia. Uh, channel three, channel six, and channel ten, because they each did their weather at slightly different times after the hour. So I would be able to go back and forth, but I was just a hundred percent obsessed, uh, and and basically since elementary school knew that I wanted to study meteorology, explain the sky, understand what was happening, uh, and eventually forecast snow. And that is, if you've listened to this podcast, that is a really common story among our guests. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the Northeast that may be listening somewhere else, I lived in the Baltimore, Maryland area for a while. And uh, you heard him mention the rain snow line. When there are snow events and storms in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic, it's often a challenging forecast problem to find out where the rain versus snow line sets up. And often I-95, the interstate, was a good marker for where the rain snow line would be, and it would oscillate back and forth uh, along that corridor. So I'm well aware of what you're referring to as someone that lived in the D.C. area for 12 years. Let me give you a bit of Joel's background. He has a bachelor's of Science and meteorology from Penn State. He graduated with the highest distinction at the top of the class. And then he went up to the University of Boulder to get a master's degree in meteorology and policy. And then check this out. Also an MBA from the Leeds School of Business and Entrepreneurship. That's some of his educational background. He's also served as a modeling analyst and a meteorologist for the International Catastrophe Insurance or ICAD Institute. Uh, Colorado Powder Forecast, the founder and meteorologist, Open Snow, founding meteorologist and CEO. So a very diverse background for, for a meteorologist, but certainly can understand your um, sort of foray, if you will, into the business world. How do you think your education in meteorology and entrepreneurial interests led you to uh, looping in your passion for skiing? Uh, luck. <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that uh, luck is, is talked about enough, right? You can put yourself in a good position, and you can work really hard, and you can uh, attempt uh, to be successful. But there's just a lot of luck uh, in circumstance uh, that's involved, I think, in in any success story. And so for me, I, based on my uh, 
studies of business along with meteorology wanted to do something with business and meteorology, but I did not graduate Penn State knowing that this was what I would do, that I would start a snow forecasting company uh, for consumers. I had no idea. And this is you know pre-iPhone. You have no idea what the world's going to look like. So I moved out to uh, the University of Colorado in, in Boulder. And the first couple of years when I was skiing, I found these well, what we would call forecast busts <laughs> uh, that I would ski in these big mountains and I got addicted to powder. And for those of you, you know, not powder skiers, powder is, you know, anywhere between six to 12 plus inches of fresh snow and you kind of feel it like you're floating. So there's the ski racing you might see on TV where you're laying an edge in and kind of carving these turns. Um, but, but powder skiing is more of a flotation type of thing. And it is incredibly addicting and incredibly fun. And in fact, as I talk to you now, uh, I've been in about 30 minutes, I'm going to go out and ski powder. So, uh, nice. but, but when I was in Colorado, uh, two things happened. Uh, that got my interest going. First is that I skied a great day at Vail, uh, powder 12, 18 inches. And I ended the day and a friend of mine's uncle looked up at the sky. He's not a meteorologist, had just lived there for 30 years and said, Joel, you should stick around tomorrow. It's going to be another powder day. And I said, no, you're out of your mind. I looked at the models, uh, storm's done. Well, guess what the next day was? It was a powder day. It snowed another six to 12 inches overnight. And so I was like, wait, what does this guy know living here for 30 years that I don't understand looking at the models? And then about a year later, uh, Steamboat got 48 inches and 48 hours in uh, of snow, and they were forecasted to get you know maybe a quarter of that. And I was like, I understand that there are forecasts inaccuracies, right? Meteorologists aren't perfect. Uh, the weather modeling isn't perfect. But this is absurd, <laughs> right? Like, like it's not normal to say maybe we'll get a foot and, and we'll get four feet. So those two experiences got my mind around, well, wait, we need to figure this out. Because if I knew about those those storms ahead of time, I would be skiing those days versus reading about them. So that's what put me down this path to literally just trying to figure out what we weren't understanding. Uh, and then eventually... Uh, I was good enough that my friends would text me <laughs> and say, hey, Joel, I don't believe all your forecasts, but where should we go skiing based on your <laughs> forecast, right? And and I, I got tired of all those texts, so I made a little email list, you know, just in Gmail. I just email my friends uh, every week, this is where we should go skiing. And then I made it a blog, and then some press asked me to do interviews. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, maybe this is a real business. Wow. And, and yeah, every meteorologist certainly has a story of friends and family members texting them for information, but yours is ramped up a little bit because the good skiing is dependent on your information. Let's geek out. Let's. This is weather geeks. Let's geek mm -hmm. out. What did he know uh, that the models didn't know? What What makes snow prediction so hard, particularly powder forecasting? Yeah, and powder forecasting in big mountains uh, the, the thing that is unresolved or not res resolved super well in a lot of the modeling is the orographic influence. And so uh, to kind of <laughs> demystify that a little bit, there's many ways for air to rise, right? And rising air along with moisture then converts into something fun, <laughs> rain or snow. And I often, when I give community talks, I say, I'll give you four years of meteorology, right? In 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 kind of two steps, right? We need moisture and rising air and, and, and that converts into something interesting. So orographic lift or air hitting a mountain and being forced to rise uh, is a big driver of 
of uh, of snowfall in big mountains across the west and also in New England, some of the eastern areas too. So, but it's at a small scale, right? These mountains are a few miles wide, a few thousand feet high, and they look big in person, but to a weather model that grids the world into 10 plus mile, you know, boxes, uh, the they just don't get or understand or resolve those influences of the mountains uh, perfectly. And so that was really the key. And so what took me years to figure out is understanding the wind direction. Uh, so if we could figure out the which wind direction favored certain mountains, then we'd have a better idea of, of the orographic lift and if air is going up or down based on that wind hitting a mountain. So it, what these people knew locally was basically wind directions, uh, that, and it took me years to figure out, and that wasn't necessarily in a textbook, not because people didn't understand it, but I'm in a a niche little area <laughs> of snow forecasting for powder skiers in big mountains, and the National Weather Service and really the whole weather community, and rightly so, is focused more on protecting lives and property where most people live. And that's where most radars are. And but but where we're skiing is not where most people live. They're in these kind of remote areas. So this is not a fault of meteorology or or you know the people in the science, but it just hadn't been kind of brought to the public and studied as much as I thought it could be, at least for our tiny little niche of the world. And that's for people that really like snow in big mountains. And I resonate exactly with what you're talking about, because even in some of my own scholarly studies, I look at how urban environments affect weather and climate processes. And that urban land cover is often not re well resolved in many of the forecast models. And so uh, what you're talking about related to the mountains and orography is very much in play with many things. And this is and you, you make another point that is valid. People will often ask, well, why does the National Weather Service have forecast offices in so many places around the United States? Can't they just consolidate to three or four or eight or ten? But these forecast offices are dispersed throughout the country because of the very nuance of the local realities that that impact or govern the weather. In your case, uh, mountains and orography, perhaps in another place, uh, coastal impacts and so forth. So um, do, do you resonate with that point as well? Oh, 100%. And I, you know, when I moved, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and I went to school at Penn State. So moving to Colorado, I didn't know what mountain ranges were called. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anything. So the way I learned, learned how to forecast there is by reading the National Weather Service Area Forecast Discussions, or AFDs, and there are three offices in Colorado, one in Boulder, one in Pueblo, and one in Grand Junction. And I read them every day, both of them in the morning and the afternoon, uh, for years to learn the local influences, what things are called, the kind of the local naming of things. I met with National Weather Service forecasters. Uh, I woke up early and met with avalanche forecasters because I just, I, you, there's a local knowledge that takes a long time to build. And so people will ask me in presentations, where is the hardest place to forecast for, right? In the country or in the world? And the answer is everywhere. Everywhere has a local challenge. In Colorado, it's big mountains, but along the coast, it could be, yeah, you know, it could be coastal fog or something. And when is that going to disperse? And along the Eastern seaboard, it's the rain snow line on nor'easters. There, and there's a sea breeze front somewhere else. And I mean, it just, the list goes on and on. So that local concept is very, very important. And this is also not like Joel went to school for meteorology and then created 
you know, some special things himself. No, no, this is all on the backs of everybody that came before me. I learned from so many people out here. And it took me years between those two instances where I got really frustrated of missing those powder days at Steamboat and Vail before I had a feeling that I had enough local knowledge to make a forecast. This didn't just ha happen overnight. I studied a model run and, you know, made a forecast. This took years uh, of building and, and practicing and learning from others. So yeah, that local knowledge is incredibly important. Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Joel Gratz. And I want to dig now into some of your entrepreneurial sort of convergence with meteorology. First came Colorado Powder Forecast, and that led to Open Snow, which is a website, an app, and a snow forecasting service. And it's used by millions. I want to say that again, Weather Geeks listeners, millions around the world. Businesses came about. Well, Colorado Powder Forecast happened because my friends kept texting me, <laughs> and I was, <laughs> and I was tired of that. So uh, I started an email list, and I started a blog, and I thought, hey, uh, this would be—I uh, need a name for this, right? This can't just be Joel's email list with his friends. So that was Colorado Powder Forecast, and unbeknownst to me, two other people at almost the same time—and this was in 2007—Evan uh, Thayer in uh, in Utah, started Wasatch Snow Forecast, and Brian Allegretto in the Tahoe region of California started Tahoe Weather Discussion. And this convergence happened because kind of in the late 2000s, it was just easy enough to start a website that it didn't really take any money, you know, 50 bucks a year. Uh, we didn't need to spend millions on servers. Um, but it was just early enough that maybe there wasn't a whole ton of competition uh, from social media meteorologists and from you know anybody being able to start a website with with Wix or, or something else. So we all just started this independently, effectively telling our friends and then their friends and then their friends where it was going to snow. And eventually, I got connected to uh, the founders of Surfline. So Surfline does what we do, but for surfers. And they had been. And you think about why Surfline? Well, they were around before the internet. So it used to be, you know, you'd pay some money and you'd call a number uh, on the telephone and they would tell you where the surf was. And so I got connected to them and they told me about their model and they could make a business out of uh, subscriptions and advertising and telling people about surf. And I thought, huh, that sounds interesting. That's pretty much the same thing I want to do. Uh, so I modeled uh, our business off of them. And again, right, you learn from others. And so they kind of served as as, as mentors in a way. Uh, and then I brought all of us together. So Evan in Utah, Brian in Colorado, and we just, we pulled this whole thing together. So what's interesting is there, you know, this is not the success story of Facebook, right? When you go from zero to a billion in a, in a couple of years in terms of users, right? But most entrepreneurial stories are not like that. Most take a long, long time. Uh, it took me the better part of 10 years uh, from when I first started writing to when I was, I had this business and I felt like I had a steady paycheck and I wasn't worried. 
Um, and, and maybe I could have been less worried earlier, but when you start something from scratch, you know, I feel like I worried all the time if this was a real thing and if it was gonna, gonna go to zero. And another big shout out to the entrepreneurial community in Boulder. Um, and, and there are many of them around the world now, uh, but in the late 2000s and the aughts, uh, there were a lot of people starting businesses and taking risks. Um, and I was just surrounded by people that said, hey, I want to try this thing. Let's give it a shot. And all of that converged, right? I could not have done this if I didn't go to school for meteorology at Penn State. I could not have done this if I didn't take some business classes at Penn State and then MBA in Boulder. I couldn't have done this if I didn't have friends that were starting businesses in Boulder and I got that uh, that confidence from them. I couldn't have done this if I didn't talk to all the National Weather Service meteorologists and avalanche forecasters who were so helpful in their time. Uh, and and so it's all of that convergence. Um, but but I will say, and, and another shout out just to an entrepreneurial uh, kind of concept that that maybe isn't talked about very much. I had a friend of mine, um, his name is Tim, who asked me repeatedly, uh, why did you start this business? Why did you quit your full-time job? Because you mentioned ICAD. I was a modeling analyst. So it was a hurricane and earthquake insurance company, which is a phenomenal uh, uh, kind of a conglomeration of meteorology and business, right? So that was awesome. But why did I leave that and start this company? And for all the other reasons I told you, but also, you know, my family growing up was solidly middle class, but my dad had mentioned to me, he said, well, if you want to start this thing, you know, and, and it doesn't work, I'll give you a couple bucks, make sure you get back on your feet and, you know, you're not going to be sleeping on the street or, or something. And, and that, well, you know, that, that doesn't sound an amazing, like an amazing story, you know, gave me probably that last 1% of confidence to say, okay, I'm leaving my job uh, and we're going to give this a shot. Wow. What an interesting story. And by the way, I think I referred to ICAT as an institute earlier. It is a company and I know that I wanted to make sure I clarified that. Uh, really, really interesting conversation here with uh, Joel Gratz about how he sort of blended his expertise in meteorology and entrepreneurship to create a company or a set of companies that are now being used around the world. Now, I want to pose a question to you again from the perspective of the Weather Geeks podcast. Ultimately, you want to deliver the best forecast. Does that always mean the most accurate forecast? Yeah, great. It's a great question. Well, I you know can never guarantee accuracy, right? But it is all about the communication. So one thing, and you you mentioned uh, this in the in the intro that just frustrated me is that, and and I grew up outside outside of Philadelphia where snow was not celebrated, right? I mean, it was celebrated as, as a as a school kid when I would listen to you know KYW News Radio and hope I would hear seven five five, which was the number for my my school district to you know, school canceled that that's good but but mostly snow day, snow day exactly um but mostly snow is not celebrated oh it's stay inside you know oh it's dangerous and i totally understand in areas of the world and for certain people that are not as well prepared or experienced with snow snow is a big deal um and it is um and it can be life-threatening um but for my group and the people i serve which is skiers and outdoorsy people this is something that we want uh, we want snow. So we prepare for it so we can get to the mountains uh, and we can enjoy it. And so I I think the, the biggest help that we provide to people is the communication of the forecast. Yes, we're always working on trying to make it more accurate and nuances. And I have a list a mile long of how we're still making adjustments to our modeling um, to try to account for some local influences. But largely, you know, our app, I think, is successful because it's convenient. It puts all of these forecasts in an easy to compare way. So people can wake up and look at a couple different ski areas and say, okay, I want to go here. And it also makes it convenient for them 
to understand, hey, it looks like that powder day is next Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever the day might be, not just, um, you know, there could be snow next week. We, I, I'm not saying that I can perfectly forecast seven to 10 days out, right? Nobody can. But what we're trying to do is say, hey, if you want powder, maybe a week from now, that next Tuesday or Wednesday, those could be the days. So just keep an eye on it. And this is not vastly dissimilar than severe weather forecasting that says, hey, look out five days from now. We don't know exactly where a tornado could be, but just keep be weather aware. But we're doing this um, in a positive way for skiers. So it was just kind of a slight communication difference um, and focused on skiers and outdoorsy folks. And and for the listeners that don't realize this, uh, Open Snow and Joel Gratz are well known in the ski industry. I mean, his forecast and his company's forecast, they're the gospel to people that consume this type of information. So we are talking to someone that people around the world, they they literally, he's the go-to for their information. Now, I, I don't want to get into your secrets for your company, but how do you scale your operation like this? I, I know you are, I've mentioned a couple of times, you're global. So uh, how how do you scale it or how do you decide to go global as opposed to just a little niche operation there in the Western Mountain West? Uh, should we come back to luck? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, I, I, when I was in college, I took a programming class my sophomore year and I quickly realized that programming would not be my gift to the world. Uh, and so I, I, meteorology though needs a lot of computer programming and science right so i what was challenging for me is to take all of kind of the local knowledge that i was gaining by looking at forecasts every day and again i'm writing and i have for about 15 years every morning during the season from about october 1 through about the end of april a forecast called the colorado daily snow so graphics a couple paragraphs can i get it i, I want to yeah. I, yep. You blanked out a second. Could you start back up with that answer? Because I want to make sure everyone sure. Ca- catches it. We may have lost you for a second there. I know okay. you're coming to us from a hotel, so yep. we all know about internet Wi-Fi. So. Sorry. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, so, okay. Three, two, one. So our idea around go- going global was a little bit of luck. And so I am not the best programmer. I realized that early in my college career that that would be not my gift to the world is programming. Uh, But I was lucky to meet some programmers that had an understanding of how to turn the way I was thinking about the weather in my brain and the local influences into a scalable system across the globe. So, you know, we're not inventing new programming necessarily. We're not inventing new meteorology, but we're taking certain concepts uh, and and trying to scale them up. And again, right, this is this is a team thing and and some amount of luck to to meet the right people at the right time. Uh, But I had some ideas and then our small team of programmers said, well, wait, why couldn't we do it in this way? And then maybe we could expand it. And so Uh, That was incredibly useful, and that allowed us to test out kind of these local prediction concepts and say, hey, could we bring this um, internationally? But to me, I mean, I hate the baseball analogy, but like we're in the first inning of this. Like it it was the it was just the first draft of what we have. And I think there's a lot more that we can do to add uh, the local influences uh, globally. uh, And we've just really started this. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. 
Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Joel Gratz. And I want to ask you, I want to kind of pick your brain now as a fellow meteorologist. We, we know that the challenges of weather forecasting, you've alluded to some of them in, in the podcast so far. From your lens as a card-carrying meteorologist, what are some things that you see or would like to see to help us improve weather forecasting, be it models, some type of new observation, uh, some type of communication approach? Just give us your perspective. Everything. <laughs> we want it all. Yes, uh, more computing, more observations. I mean, you, you know, satellite observations are amazing and is what led 30 to 40 years ago to weather forecasts across the southern hemisphere catching up in accuracy to weather forecasts across the northern hemisphere um, since so much of the southern hemisphere is devoid of people on land and is mostly oceans that then satellites were able to get a lot more observations and that in turn led to more accuracy in the forecast but also satellites have their limitations right we're in big mountains there are generally very few weather stations in big mountains and friend of mine friends of mine joke like well once cars send back more weather information or phones send back more weather information that will help well most cars and most people are still in concentrated areas around cities or along uh highways and if you look at um data that comes back from airplanes you know it's very useful right but most airplanes also fly pretty much similar routes, right? So there are still large gaps uh, in the world. And I, and I can't necessarily answer how that's going to be solved, but it's super exciting to see uh, remote or drone um, ships that are out there and buoys. I, I mean, like, this is just incredible. Who knows where we're going to be in 20 years, but with compute and uh, the ability to have internet globally now uh, via satellite, it's just very, very exciting. Um Compute power is very interesting, uh, but also, you know, I've been very interested in, and we're not doing very much of this, but the whole machine learning AI <laughs> craze, and, you know, I think we're very, very, very early in this, and I don't know that this is this is the solution to all of our problems, but, you know, I, I had a mentor of mine many years ago when I kind of bragged to him in my in my youthful exuberance that I figured out these wind direction tricks of snowfall in Colorado and and that I was kind of adjusting the model in my mind and I was outsmarting the model. And he said, why would you outsmart the model? Just just build that in as a post-processing system or, you know, now, now it could be the whole processing system. So I, I think there is a lot of room in machine learning and artificial intelligence to take what a lot of local forecasters, quote unquote, know in their brain and bring it into a repeatable, scalable system uh, that, you know, I'm not saying that we won't need, you know, a local personality or somebody trusted locally, but ideally, if there is a human with a computer in their head, which is what your brain is, we should figure out some way to translate that knowledge into a scalable, repeatable system, rather than kind of just passing it down, you know, in the forecast office, but not necessarily be in some system that, you know, can outlive, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of whisper down the lane type of mentality. So I think there's a lot to do there. And I'm really excited for the next 20 or 30 years. You know, I, um, so I'm 40, gosh, how long, I'm, I'm almost 41 and I've been doing this business for about 15 years. And, uh, you know, like anything, whether you're a professor, a forecaster, really any role, right. Um, you get bored, you get tired, you get burned out occasionally. And so I was lucky enough to have a call with Joel Myers 
uh, a couple of years ago. And because I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship from him. And Joel Myers was the founder of AccuWeather uh, probably almost 60 years ago, uh, now in the 60s and 70s out of Penn State. And and I had a call with him. I said, Joel, you know, he's, I don't, I can't quote it, but he's he's late in his career. He must be in his 70s or even even maybe 80s by now. Um, I said, Joel, have you you ever get burned out? Do you ever, you know, want to retire? He's still working, you know, at AccuWeather. And he said, I am so excited to come to work every day with a team to make improvements, um, to figure out new things. And this is what I love to do. And I just thought that was so fun and refreshing because you hear so many people talk about waiting until they can retire and then being done. Um, that, yes, this is exciting. This is super cool. So I am super excited. Kind of, I don't know if I'll be doing this into my 70s and 80s, um, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed. But I am excited um, to figure out all this stuff and take the knowledge in my brain and figure out how we can program it. Um, and so how we can do even better than we're doing right now with forecasting. You know, with snow, the, the, the question comes to mind, do you have an off season or because you're global, <laughs> you're always focused on some place? Yeah, I'm, I'm about to go take a nap. Um, this has been an incredible uh, season across parts of the Western U.S. Yeah, yes, let's talk about that. The West has been <laughs> off the chain. <laughs> off, off the chain. That's the technical term that I think I learned uh, junior year, right? Um, yeah, we, we've set records in California and and Utah and and uh, and the entire Western United States is is at or above average snowpack. Um, and we're recording this in early April of 2023. Uh, which is a gift for water <laughs> because that snow turns into water. It's a gift for skiers. Uh, and it's just remarkable to see the uh, atmosphere in outlier mode. That's a term that uh, Dr. Jim Steenberg here at the University of Utah uses often. We get these big storms and the atmosphere has just been in outlier mode for consistently months. You know, this is not just a big week or two, but this is most of the winter. We have just gotten uh, phenomenal amounts of snow. Uh, Alta in Utah, uh, I probably will surpass 850 inches of snow this year, which is a record. And because it keeps snowing there through May, uh, you know, my guess is they probably they have a decent shot of getting above 900 inches, which is just a phenomenal um, achievement. Wow. And, um, and yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. But our whole team, because we work uh, every day, we produce forecasts every day. Now, we have an automated side of our product, but we also have local forecasters that write what we call daily snows every day to, to guide people, you know, usually during the season, you get a week or two of high pressure, get to relax a little bit, get to cruise. <laughs> and that has not happened uh, this year. So after this storm cycle, that's about to conclude, I'm looking forward to uh, a, a one week break, but you, you mentioned kind of the lack of seasonality creeping into our business because of international. We also realized a few years ago that all the people uh, like us that were skiing in the winter were mountain biking and hiking and rock climbing in the summer and we all need specific forecasts for that. It's just a little bit different. Is it going to be windy on the peak? Uh, when's the first chance of a thunderstorm and lightning so you can get off of high terrain uh, and, and be back down below tree line and things like that. So we've expanded our business to try to capture those forecasts. And this is mostly just scratching our own itch, right? We're out there. I don't want to get struck by lightning <laughs> on top of a mountain. So I'm furiously checking multiple models many times a day in the days leading up to a big hike I want to do. How can we recreate that level of service uh, in a more automated way to our audience? I wish I'd have known about you a few years ago. I took uh, my family out to uh, Glacier National Park and I was a little nervous about driving the going to the sun road for any of you listening know that road. And so I was checking feverishly checking, you know, I'm a meteorologist. I was checking to see what was happening and we were fine. 
uh, up to the top of the road, I guess still about 23, 30 miles. I don't remember how long, but then essentially all the way back down, we were in cloud cover, which for me actually was okay because I, I get a little nervous up in high terrain, <laughs> high elevation. And so I couldn't really see anything because we were in clouds. So it made my day, but I want, I want to kind of, you know, we're, we're getting towards the end of the podcast and there's still so much more I want to talk to you about. I, I want to mention a couple of things and how it impacts your business, atmospheric rivers and climate change. Yeah, so atmospheric rivers, uh, <laughs> it, it's a it's a big deal. And now AR is kind of AR, which is the acronym for atmospheric river, is in the vernacular of I'd say many people in California. California, this is not just kind of a weather geeks term anymore. Um, and so people understand this uh, and realize that that can allow the uh, atmosphere to go into outlier mode with these massive storms. Uh, I can be very good. If the snow, if the temperatures are cold and we get a lot of snow and not as much rain, uh, it can be problematic for the snowpack uh, and for skiing if it's very warm. Uh, but from a weather geek, because you get more rain than snow, but from a weather geek's perspective, holy moly, are snow levels challenging to forecast for atmospheric reserves? Snow levels, snow levels. What is the elevation dividing line between snow above and rain below? You get massive fluctuations that are reasonably modeled, but still somewhat poorly modeled and very surprising. And people are working on this, uh, but it's very challenging uh, where you, the atmosphere can be isothermal. Uh, so the same temperature as you go up in elevation and you just have all sorts of challenges where you get you know, rain and snow at almost similar elevations, but across different sides of mountain ranges. So very, very challenging. Uh, and that that's mostly um, our forecaster in California, Brian Allegretto. That's mostly for him to deal with. Generally, atmospheric rivers, somewhat peter out their influence by the time they get to Colorado. So I don't have to worry about that very much. Uh, from a climate change perspective, you know, from my understanding, the, the physics are pretty much the same. You know, the physics of the atmosphere um, aren't necessarily changing in a warmer world. Um, the relationships that we we know of, of um, maybe teleconnections and, you know, or El Nino, La Nina, we see that and it means something else for the weather. You know, maybe those things change. Uh, but from a day-to-day -day forecasting perspective, you know, the physics are the physics. So that's not really changing anything in our world. Uh, what we are noticing, though, obviously in a warmer world, uh, mountains that are lower in elevation could see more rain than snow, just simply due to temperatures increasing. Uh, we could also see more rain than snow on the shoulder seasons, meaning spring and fall, uh, where you're already on the borderline between rain and snow. So a degree or two of temperature change uh, can have an impact. But, you know, interestingly, and not talked about very much, um, warmer temperatures aren't great for snowmaking. Uh, but snowmaking technology has improved greatly. And so snowmaking is kind of a staple of how to get a long season in the Northeast. And from the studies I've seen, snowmaking technology has at least kept up with, if not surpassed, the warming that we've seen. So this is not to say that, you know, climate change isn't an issue and, and we and, you know, skiing is fine uh, and we should ignore it. But it's just interesting that from a technological perspective, um, it, it's you can kind of keep up with the warming on the downside, but then technology and how much snow we can create at, at a given temperature and and uh, with given water too. So not a perfect world out there. Don't don't nobody misquote me. Uh, but um, but things are okay-ish uh, at this point. Yeah, and I've been reading uh, some studies on potential impacts on the Winter Olympics and venues that may not be able to support some of the snow events or skiing events in the future. But and the, the offsets using snow making and so forth. So it's certainly an interesting world we're in. Last question. Uh, 
Uh, there is a companion podcast to Open Snow called The Flakes. Uh, in a recent episode, you were interviewed and called this year's Western Snow Nutso. So I, I think you probably have given us some insight already to this, but what does it take to make Nutso level? <laughs> Nutso, <laughs> I love it. I don't, you know, it's funny. As much as you don't try to be like your parents, I probably got that one from my dad and didn't even realize I said that <laughs> word um, on the podcast until that was. And we have some great researchers and producers here that find <laughs> those things for the show. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable, you know. And then our Slack channel, our internal communications, all they said after that podcast, Joel said it was Nutso. I was like, oh my, I guess I did. Um, two things make it seem nutso to me. Total amount of snow, you know, from a season or in any particular storm is only half of the battle. The other half is consistency. You know, you get a big storm, that's great. And then if it goes dry for two months, not so fun, right? And and not so amazing or nutso. But the fact that we have been at or above our uh, kind of average snowpack for effectively the entire season and just going up and up and up with effectively no long breaks, that is what nutso is. And this is kind of the least talked about thing in skiing, but consistency is awesome. We don't need big storms, but if it just snows a little bit and snows a little bit and stays cold and stays cold, that leads to phenomenal skiing that may not make the headlines. And this year we had both consistency and massive storms. I don't know how to do any better than that. I feel like I should retire, but maybe I'll, I'll model Joel, Joel Myers and try to keep at this for another 50 years or so, 40 years. Well, this this has been amazing. I mean, I've I've learned some things here that I didn't know. And shout out to Professor Powder. I heard you give Jim Steenberg a, a mention earlier, someone that I know and has been on the Weather Geeks TV show in, in the past. Where can people find you on social media, your company, you, or perhaps on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. Opensnow.com or just search open snow one word on iOS and, and Android. And we have a few social media accounts floating around too, but all of our best work <laughs> is uh, is on the apps and, and the website. And, and we don't give anything, you know, secret <laughs> out on the socials. What, what we know and what we can say uh, is all in our app and our website. Nice. And if you want a little bit more background reading on Joel and Open Snow, uh, there was an article in coloradosun.com back on March 12th of this year. So if you want to follow up more on, on what he's up to, it's been a fascinating discussion. But before we get out of here, it's time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, super, or a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Michael Shane Blum. Michael specializes in landscape, aerial, time-lapse, and Milky Way astrophotography. In addition to his own photography, Michael offers workshops and tutorials, including a recent one on using the inversion and marine layer to capture unique moments in nature. Now, that's a weather geek moment right there. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Joel, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm honored to be here as a, a now, I guess, an official weather geek. <laughs> You are officially weather geek status. Thank you all for listening, as are you that listen to us all of the time on the podcast as well. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. See you next time.